The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. this, our last part in the Advent evening series, comes from Revelation chapter 1. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. As we celebrate Advent, remember that uh, it's a celebration of Christ's first coming. But as you come into the book of Revelation, we have a vision of Christ's second coming, the glorified King. His first coming At his first coming, Jesus was meek and mild. At his second and final coming, it will be glorious and triumphant. The book of Revelation stirs up our hope and our our vision, enriches the true meaning of Christmas as we discover that the one born in Bethlehem is the King Eternal, the only wise and holy God. Let me read Revelation 1, verses 4 through 20. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Our Father in heaven, I would ask, at the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts, might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, as I was writing my dissertation for my doctoral program, I had the privilege of studying the, the, transit, well, the topic on transitional leadership. I began to study the kings of Israel and Judah and began to see a vivid contrast. The apostate northern tribes of Israel were characterized by short terms, bloodbaths, in which no dynasty lasted more than four generations, all ending with the usurper rising up to slaughter the king and his sons. In stark contrast, the kings of Judah, though at times tarnished by treachery and severe threats, enjoyed transitions which were much more smooth by comparison. The kings of Judah enjoyed longer reigns, better security, even co-regencies between father and son on the throne together. And David's line lasted through the exile into Babylon. David's dynasty lasts over 400 years, almost unheard of in the ancient world. Israel had 10 dynasties, stretching a mere 200 years, half the time of David's dynasty. During times of transition and leadership, a people experienced anxiety. This was certainly true in ancient Israel. I predict in the coming year of America, an election year, we will no doubt experience angst as a current president faces a bitter battle with the opposing party in the House of Representatives who are determined to impeach him. Our own church is nearing the end of a transition in leadership with a new senior pastor and Chris Walker to be installed in just a few short months. If there's been any fear or anxiety amongst our members, my, myself and my fellow associate pastors have been blissfully unaware. I commend this church for being calm and secure and weathering through this season of transition well. I could not be more pleased with the unity and help demonstrated in this church over this past year. And believe me, I do not take it for granted. As I know all too well, the sad accounts of churches who are torn asunder during changes in leadership. To God be praised. You could say, from a historical, redemptive historical point of view, that we are in a long season of transition that we live between the first coming of our king and we await his glorious installment 
when he is announced and presented as king and clear to all, not just to those of us who worship and follow him by faith. Tonight, I hope to help us enrich our worship and celebration of Christ's birth as we reflect upon this passage from Revelation chapter 1, taking from it the outline given to us in verse 8 and verse 4 and verse 8 to remind us that Jesus is the king who was, the king who is, and the king who is to come. Verses 4 and 5 establish for us that Jesus is king by reference to his throne, establishing that he is the ruler of the kings of earth. Verse 6, he made us a kingdom. Only a king can do such a thing. And to his belongs the glory and the dominion. We know that he is king of all creation, as we read in John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews, one of these fabulous passages that instruct us and tell us that it is through Christ and for Christ that God made all things, and that in Christ all things hold together. But he is not only king over creation, he was king before creation. Saul and David were not born kings. They were anointed kings by the prophet Samuel under the command of God, and these men died. Pontius Pilate, during his interrogation of Jesus, recognized something kingly in Jesus, but cynically has his soldiers inscribe above his head on the cross, here is the king of the Jews. Verse 8 tells us that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Using the beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet, he is the king from A to Z. He has always been king from first to last, he says in verse 17, our king forever. He is the king who was. When the Father, Son, and Spirit brought all of creation into existence, he was the king whose throne was challenged by Satan, who seduced our first parents into rebellion. He was the king when God promised to David to have a successor, to have a descendant greater than him, one who would reign on his throne forever, something that no mere fallen mortal man could fulfill. He is the king whom Isaiah was privileged to see, seated on a throne whose robe filled the temple, hearing the seer from crying out in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He was the baby king to whom the magi of the east brought costly gifts. He is the king of righteousness who with zeal overturned the money tables in the courtyards of the temple, rebuking the greedy profiteers who turned his father's house into a den of robbers. And he is the king who with authority cast out evil spirits, healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, and without blinking or stuttering, would say to a believer, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. 
he exercised his full rights to pardon the condemned, the rightful king of creation. Jesus was the king of glory who shattered expectations, refusing to seize a earthly throne in Jerusalem, but waited patiently for a heavenly one. People wondered, could this be the Christ, the hoped-for Davidic king who would lead a popular unrising, overthrowing Rome's occupation? Perhaps even the Sadducees and the Pharisees could have gotten behind his program. Had Jesus chosen to politically maneuver his way to seize power at the capital of Judah. But that was not his agenda. Jesus would be no political pawn in the hands of men. He came to do his Father's will. He was already king and always would be king of a kingdom that is not of this world. Jesus trusted his father as he endured and suffered punishment for our sins, hung upon a cross bearing the weight of the sins of the redeemed past, present, and future. And for a time, his followers despaired dismayed as they looked upon the one who was pierced for our transgressions, endured days of bewilderment and confusion until it became clear that he would not remain dead. Death could not keep its grip on him. He triumphed over sin and the grave, the firstborn of the dead, the king who lives forever, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Israel had rejected God as their king and asked Samuel to anoint for them a king so that they could be like the nations. People desire a king for security. People want to know who's in charge, who will take responsibility, who will defend us, to whom might we take our complaints when our rights are violated. Human history is full of efforts to deify pharaohs, Caesars, and emperors, laying upon their weak and limited shoulders a burden that no mere man, that no human government can bear. But the broad shoulders of heaven's king can bear at all. And indeed, the government is on his shoulders, always has been, and always will be. Ours is a king who defeated our worst enemy, has pardoned our crimes, and promised to defend us to the end. It is with confidence that we can enter a new year with an election cycle that is sure to be turbulent a roaring economy that may retract, living in a society with growing hostility against our beliefs, with increasing pressures, and the possibility that we 
in our lifetimes might suffer loss of our religious freedoms, perhaps loss of our economic welfare and the freedom to exercise our speech. But we have a king who has proven himself trustworthy time and time again throughout all of the ages of his church. We can trust him to bring us safely home, the one who promised to never leave us nor forsake us. The king who was is also the king who is. Our God reigns. Let the earth rejoice, the Psalms cry. The book of Hebrews, which we studied over these last nine months in morning worship, show us that Jesus, after he had made purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His sacrifice was a substitute, a complete and final sacrifice of atonement for the sins of his people. As priest, he cleansed us and now intercedes for us. As king, he pardons us and even now defends and protects us. He is glorious and worthy of our worship. And John, in verses 12 through 16, writes what he saw in his vision. He saw the glorified king in a long robe wearing a golden sash across the chest whose hair was white like wool, like fresh fallen snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the sound of roaring waters. And in his hand were seven stars. Out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. And his face shined like the sun in all its splendor. The description is so fitting. There is no pomp and pageantry that characterizes the rulers of earth. The crown jewels secure in the Tower of London are truly a sight to see, and no doubt millions, if not billions, will tune in to watch the next coronation of the King of England in coming years. The image of Jesus makes ridiculous the Roman Catholic Pope and his cardinals who spend millions upon their robes and garments and silly hats. We have a simple picture of Jesus, the glorified king, and it's stunning. A mere golden sash is the only garment that gets any attention. The king's eyes and hair and feet are white and pure, purified by fire reflecting his righteousness. But notice that his beauty lies not in his garments, but in the king's face, which shines brighter than the sun, radiating holy love and joy, giving us a vision of what we will behold one day, when we will see him face to face on that glorious day. And no doubt his beauty will make all the beauties of this earth dim and pale by comparison. But not only will we see his face, we will hear his voice. 
which fills our hearts with joy and peace. Most people love to sit or to sleep by moving water at the shore or near a rushing stream. The sound is just soothing to the soul. I was awestruck years ago to visit Niagara Falls, gazing at the stunning beauty, but, but just listening to the roar of more than 3,000 tons of water falling over the edge every second. The comfort and security of the voice of Jesus, the King who is, is confirmed further by three images of, a lamp, of lampstands, stars, and a sword. Verse 12 says that Jesus stood in the midst of seven lampstands, which we're told later represent the churches. Jesus is with us. The seven stars represent the angels of the churches. And notice that these stars are in his hand. Truly, he has the whole world especially his church, in his hand. The scriptures declare that God guards his people like the apple of his eye. No permanent harm will befall them. He defends us with a two-edged sword, the word of God, which with no enemy can contend. Israel struggled, feeling vulnerable in the land of Canaan, surrounded by enemies, and sought out a king oftentimes made allies with the pagans around them. We are no less tempted today to trust in the world for our protection. But our text reminds us that it's not in Trump we trust or political parties, Supreme Court picks, bull markets, or any other flitting security. No, we have a king who reigns whose throne knows no contender. We can trust him. Even after the terrible tragedy that afflicted our congregation just this week, and the sad passing of a young woman, Catherine Miller, daughter of Dave and Adrian, whose life ended suddenly on the streets of Manhattan. Her passing... The passing of Frank Nolt was expected, but Catherine's was not. A young woman in her prime expected to be married this coming September. This is not the way it is supposed to be. But a sad and stark reminder that we live in a dangerous and fallen world. Death afflicts us all, some sooner and some later. Death is a curse that does not belong in God's good creation. And the reigning, glorious Christ, the King, is not surprised by such things. And his purposes are often mysterious to us. But we can trust him. Even when our desires and dreams may be crushed in a moment, leaving us with the only hope and comfort that comes from the good news that death has been swallowed In victory, the king who is to come will make all things right, who will usher in a new heaven and earth where there will be no more death 
or sorrow, but joy and life everlasting. We worship a king who was, a king who is, and a king who is to come. John, who in Jesus' life on earth was his best friend and companion. But here, before the glorified Jesus, he falls down as though dead at his feet. Before the living one who died and yet lives forever, who holds the keys of death and hell in his hands, Jesus simply says to him, fear not. We need not fear tomorrow because Jesus is on his throne and his promise to return is secure because of the down payment he paid at his first coming. And the one who promised is faithful and true. He will come with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes and nations of the earth and people of every race and language will bow in weeping. Either a weeping of joy and gladness or a weeping of lament, dismay, and eternal regret. He will come and wipe the tears of his follower, wipe away the tears from our eyes. Comfort our sorrows, restore our losses, cast death and the devil into the lake of fire forever. As he embraces those that he purchased by his own blood. His coronation date is set. Only the Father knows the time in which all of the nations, after they have been gathered in, descend to Son for the second coming. And our job is to wait, to pray, and to be faithful to the end. And it's our privilege to serve as heralds, those who announce that our great high king reigns and will return soon. No doubt the coming months, in the coming months, you know I'll be bombarded by political ads on TV, the radio, the internet, as the November election comes quickly. People may come to our doors, email us, and call us to woo us to their candidate of choice. And yes, it is good to engage in the political process to exercise our rights as citizens in this republic. But we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We live as free men and women, secure under the reign of our king, before whom and through whom we serve as ambassadors before a dying world. We live in a time between the times awaiting the inauguration of our eternal king, when the invisible will be made visible, the new everlasting kingdom of righteousness will be established with holiness and justice forever. So let us proclaim him, worship him, rejoice in him, and wait patiently with endurance, quietly trusting in him. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, We praise you and thank you for giving us your son who holds authority over life and death, the one who has come and the one who reigns even now and will return on that great triumphant day. Give us grace and wisdom and patience to endure 
and quiet trust in you. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.